How you guys doing? You guys are like ready to go. You're just glad it's not 110 degrees. I love this quote I'm going to put up on the screens for you from an early church father. He said that most scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. Just kind of like let that one settle in on you. Most scriptures speak to us, the Psalms speak for us. You know, in that simple statement, Athanasius has captured what maybe you've already felt is like the difference in Psalms from all the other scripture. It feels different. It has a different tone. Do you know that three times as many people in America go to the scripture to find comfort, prayer, perspective, than they do to find a Bible answer for a thing that they're wrestling with. Which is why Psalms is the most often quoted book in your Bible. But more than that, it's just a remarkable book if you think about it. 150 Psalms in all, written over nearly a thousand years by numerous authors in innumerable situations and myriads of uh, you know, context and uh, regions. You know, the Psalms, they speak for us. The Psalms have a way of acknowledging our humanity and yet elevating us back to a place where we're in alignment with how God sees us. They speak for us. That's one of the reasons why we're doing this series we've called Psalms by the Numbers. We've called it that because there's so many numbers involved with just the statistical things that I've mentioned to you about Psalms. Um, So each week during the summer here, we're going, we're going to, in the summer, we're going to tackle eight of these Psalms. Uh, Danny Sugimoto, our, our junior high pastor, just did a great job last week. Thanks. Thanks so much to Danny. And by the way, the collections of Danny Sugimoto's writings will soon be on Kindle and Amazon. You had to be here last Sunday to get that joke and remember that he said that. Um, but each week, we're just going to title the message by the number. And so this one's called 19. And uh, each week, we're going to just look at that psalm and some of the things that it might bring out or Maybe you've been searching for the words to say about your life, about God, about those that you love. And we invite you to join along with us. You know, on the back of your note sheet, if you got one on the way in, there's a list of resources that lets you read through Psalms at a different pace and a different depth. I mean, if you can just put your toe in the water, you can do some heavy, serious, two-volume commentary work just from Psalms if you want. But somehow, like, join us in, in exploring the Psalms this summer. If you've, if you've ever looked at the world, what you see around you and say, you know, there must be something more. There must be a God. I don't understand everything about him. I don't know all the theology about it. I can't just, like, put it together, like, in an engineer kind of package. But there must be something. There must be someone. Then what David has to say in Psalm 19 is totally going to resonate with you. 
Now, one of the things that we're going to do with this series, and I know Danny mentioned it last week, is we're going to, each, with each psalm, we're going to like give you a nice to know, a factoid. So this one is pretty, uh, I'm going to bring out my inner nerd, so I just want you to buckle up and stick with me for a couple minutes, and then we're going to go to like, uh, just kind of like the expansive look at the psalm. But you probably already know that psalms are, it's poetry, it's songs. But it's different than English poetry. You know, we, we think of poetry as, you know, the symmetry that has to happen or the rhythm is, is based on the rhyming of the words or um, like the meter of the syllables or the words, but not so in Hebrew poetry. The, the balance or the symmetry is there in the thoughts. And uh, one of the forms that this Hebrew poetry comes to us in is called parallelism. You got that? Everyone say parallelism. Awesome. You guys are still with me. I'm going to put the definition up here. If you have a fill in the blank, you can just write the one word in because I know that you wouldn't write the whole definition. But uh, parallelism is the foundation of Hebrew poetry in which the thoughts of two or more lines are related. It's found throughout the Bible, but most often in Psalms or Proverbs, and it's a structure of thought rather than an external form like meter or rhyme in which the reader balances the writer balances a series of words so that patterns of deliberate contrast or intentional repetition appear. So there's basically, let me put it in fireman speak for you, like psalms have a rhythm of thoughts and the vehicle that parallelism comes to us in, there's two basic ones, there's bicola and tricola. Now I want to let you know that's not a soft drink and it's not a virus you can get. A bicola is when you have two parallel thoughts. This is in your notes as well. They appear side by side. And a tricola is obviously how many thoughts? Three. Okay. So in this Psalm 19, there are three stanzas. You know, poetry has stanzas like you know, sections of thought. In stanza one and three, we have four bicola and two tricola. You still with me? And then in the middle, stanza two there are six bicola. So each stanza has six lines just constructed a little differently. So I'm going to throw, if I haven't lost you yet, I'm just going to throw stanza one up and see if I can lose you. Okay, so I'm going to put it up there and we're going to break it down. I'm going to point out the four bicola and the two tricola in this first stanza of Psalm 19. And I've delineated it by colors. So first of all, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Bicola or tricola? Bi, two thoughts, right? Again, another bicola, verse 2, day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. You with me? Now in verse 3 is a little harder. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. That is actually a bicola, but it doesn't translate well into English. It's actually two different statements in the original. Then our first tricola their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world, too, and in the heavens it's pitched a tent for the sun. That's three thoughts. Then the fourth bicola, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion and like a champion rejoicing to run his course. And then it ends, big wrap-up, big finish, with a tricola. It rises at one end of the heavens, that's one thought, and makes its circuit to the other, two and nothing is hidden from his heat. How about that? You just learned something, right? So you can't say that you didn't learn anything in church today, unless you're already a PhD at this, and you're like, you messed it all up, Britt. So 
Slap your neighbor, we're all done with school, okay? That's your nice to know. Psalm 19, though, is all about communication, getting back to like the 10,000-foot level. And we're going to see three forms of communication in this psalm. We're going to see nonverbal, we're going to see verbal, and we're going to see individual, almost like an IDP for its verbal communication for an individual, okay? So first of all, you know, you know what nonverbal communication is, right? This is what we communicate without ever saying anything. It's in our facial expression. It's in our body language. Uh, my family and I play around with nonverbal communication. I, I think I dreamed this up. Maybe I didn't. Um, but when we're on long vacations or we're just bored, uh, we will try to mix our nonverbal communication in an incongruent way. So welcome to my weird sight family world. Let me give you an example. We would say, okay, make your eyes mad and your mouth happy. <laughs> we have many versions of this. But you see, it's like you, you laugh because like that doesn't fit. Because nonverbal communication is universal. It's like it transcends languages. It transcends countries and ethnic groups. Like no matter what language you speak, your nonverbal is basically the same. We pick up the same cues from one another. And then also, you know, we believe the nonverbal over the verbal most of the time. I mean, how many times has someone been telling you something, but for whatever they're giving off on their nonverbal uh, gestures, you don't believe them? They're saying, it's the truth. And you go, no, it's not. Or I just, I just love you so much. <laughs> so you don't buy it. You don't buy it because that's nonverbal. Well, David starts off this psalm by talking about the nonverbal communication that God has given us. The heavens are the universal language of God. This first section of the psalm it's all about God's nonverbal communication. The heavens are the universal language of God. Psalm 19.1, we looked at this just a few weeks ago in our message on evolution. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Like we just look at the skies and we know something. There's something being communicated to us. David breaks it down. He says in verse 2 that this nonverbal communication is constant. It's day after day and night after night. The universe speaks to us. It doesn't use any words, but it can be heard in any language. Verse 3, no language. There's no language where its voice is not heard. And it's available to anyone or everyone everywhere. Verse 4, its words go to the ends of the world. God has communicated his glory and his works if you'll just look up. You know, at that time, it's the only TV they had to watch. They, they didn't have cable, but they had God flicks. <laughs> I thought of that all on my own. And you know, God flicks is still available today. The, pre, the Pew Forum study found that six out of ten people like significantly connect 
with nature and with the earth. It's like there's, there's something about what we're surrounded with that is meaningful to us. And for many of us, it says to us, there is a God. Maybe you've had that experience before. Maybe you've been you know, out on a trail where there's no lights and you look up and the stars are just like blowing up the sky. Or you're sitting on your surfboard at churches and it's four feet and fat and just like peeling to the right and you're like, there is a God. We see things and we just go, it's amazing. There must be a God. Now, the universe, in David's mind, this amazing work of God, is just a backdrop for the sun. In verse 4, he says, in the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. So this amazing universe that God has made that speaks of his glory and of his works is just simply a backdrop for the sun. And, you know, for the people of that time, you could not overestimate the importance of the sun to them. They were sun-centric because their lives depended upon it. They needed the sun for warmth. They needed the sun to grow their crops. And, you know, not much has changed. We're still sun-centric. We even know psychologically the benefits of sun. Right? I mean, they're, they're sad. You've heard of this seasonal affective disorder where if you're just in cloudy weather all the time, you, you get bummed out. You get depressed. You, we need the sunshine just to buoy our emotions. Now, if you're born and raised in Southern California, you don't even know what I'm talking about because you've had so much sunshine, you don't know what it's like to live without it. But, you know, the whole world doesn't live that way. Do you know, that, you know what the cloudiest city in the United States is? Seattle, Washington. Sometimes in competition with New York, uh, with Buffalo and Anchorage, but always at the top. They, Seattle has 308 days a year of clouds, which is why they have to drink so much coffee. <laughs> the sunniest city in America, Yuma, Arizona. 90% of the days that you wake up, you're going to have sunshine. You wonder about our valley? We have... 276 days on average of sunshine here. It's going to be bummer next Sunday when it's 110. But um, that means 75% of the time we have sunny days here. So we just don't even think that much about the sun. In fact, you know, a lot of Cindy and I's family live in the Midwest where the sun doesn't shine all the time. And we have each other's weather in our phones. And so we check each other's weather and it would not be unusual for us to reach out to them like in mid-December <laughs> and just like screenshot the weather. And then we have this dialogue where it's like, I just want to say to you who live in Holland, Michigan, that um, you don't know how lucky you are because you have all these beautiful seasons. And in Southern California, we don't have that. It's just everyday sunshine. It gets monotonous. <laughs> I send that text mid-December to them. <laughs> By the way, in David's rendition of the universe, he's, he's coming at it from kind of the ancient cosmological perspective. 
And their perspective was this, that the earth is like a flat plate and the universe is like a bowl turned upside down on top of it. That is the canopy in which all the stars and the celestial uh, beings like, uh, are hung. And in that canopy, that upside down bowl where everything is captured in this space, that space is only designed as a backdrop for the sun to be placed in it. It's just there for the sun to be displayed. And what David is intimating here is that the universe, when we look up and we see the sun, that the sun reminds him of God's great glory and what he has done. And as he goes through this first stanza, David starts to mix his metaphors, which may bug you if you're an English teacher, but he does it anyway. Um, he says the sun is like a bridegroom that comes from his pavilion, verse 5, and, and he's drawing a picture here of, the, of, of weddings at that time, and the groom was kind of like the highlight, not the, not the bride. It's a patriarchal system, and the groom would come out in his finest clothing, and he would stand on his pavilion, and the whole village would be out to see the appearing of the groom before the wedding. And so David is saying when that sun comes up, it reminds him of the glory of God appearing every day. And then he says that the sun is like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other and nothing is hidden from its heat. He's saying that the sun is like a champion runner who every day shows up and runs the complete course and finishes it. It's reliable because he's a champion. And it all ties together to say, in nonverbal communication, as I look around, God exists. I see his handiwork. I see his glory. But that's only one way that God speaks to us. We would not be satisfied in a relationship where all we did was nonverbal. We need words, right? So verbal communication is part of how God desires to communicate with us. The nonverbal is just a start. The heavens may be the universal and nonverbal communication of God, but the universe alone is not sufficient. This is in your notes. Only the Bible tells us of God's saving grace. The universe alone is not sufficient. Only the Bible tells us of God's saving grace. So, like, that's something that cannot be communicated through creation. But through God's word, we learn of God's intention to redeem every person that has ever lived that will call on his name. The Bible tells what creation cannot tell, that God desires to save each one of us. And this is the way that Psalm 19 says it. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now, David is specifically here, if you want to be technical, he's talking about the law, the Torah, and probably at this time, David has the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and then he likely has Joshua, Ruth, Samuel, and Judges. But even with that limited perspective, David can see that God desires to revive the soul. And we have even more word today because Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. 
and he is the living word. And we have the full canon or the full capture of Scripture to go to that are the words of God to all the generations since. It's interesting to me that you can even go to the Old Testament and see this imagery of the gospel before even the whole Bible is complete. David says that before conversion, before Christ, before the knowledge of of what God's word gives us, we are dead. Our souls are dead. And we need the living word, the word to revive, to resuscitate that dead soul. You know, in the New Testament, that's reflected in passages that say, you know, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Peter writes that you must be born again through the living and enduring word of God. And even Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32, 47 says that these words of the law, they're not just idle words for you. They are your life. The life in Christ is revealed to us through this verbal communication, this desire, this remarkable book that God has given us called the Bible that tells us of what we sang of today, that God loves us. And until we have that moment, whether we're four years old or 40 or 80, until we have that moment where we realize that Christ came to save us, our soul is dead. There's something missing. It's empty. It's not completely alive. And the gospel makes that alive. Now, the Word of God doesn't just revive our soul. It doesn't just save us. And it's like, you know, I got in. There are many other benefits to the Bible, and David lists these. The Bible helps us become wise. Verse 7, the, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. I would imagine if we sat down with any of you who've been a Christian for a while, you would say, you know, the stuff that I've learned in the Bible has definitely made, allowed me to make wiser decisions, better choices. The Bible tells us how to be truly happy. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. I wonder if we polled everybody, if you wouldn't say, you know, my life before Christ was this way, but my life as a Christian, I'm just so much happier than I was before I was a Christian. doesn't mean that I don't have challenges and things in my life, but there's like an inner joy that I have because I'm, I'm living as God intended me to live. The Bible gives us guidance also in verse 8. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Who, who here that's a Christian wouldn't say that you've never gone to the Bible and say, God, show me what to do here. Lead me through your word. The Bible tells us how to find satisfaction. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether glory, are righteous. They are more precious than gold, much, much, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. It's like, if you're a Christian and, and you're like regularly investing your time in understanding the Bible, there are moments where that word is really sweet to you. It, it, it brings like a contentment that you didn't have without the knowledge of Scripture. And then lastly, the Bible warns us of destructive choices. Verse 11, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them is great reward. So 
if you're a Christian and you're reading your Bible, how often have you not just been like learned? It's like, you know, that's not a healthy behavior. That's not part of being Christianly or being a Christ follower. And so that needs to go. You kind of already knew that already, probably, but the revelation of God's word is kind of like, oh, yeah, I should get rid of that. So when I hear people say, you know, well, you know, I don't really read my Bible. You know, why, why should I read my Bible? I'm like, because of all this? Because, because it revives our soul? The, the truth of the gospel is found in the Bible? And, and who gets tired of hearing that God loves them? We need to be reminded of that constantly and that God gave his son for us. And then there's all these other benefits of living our lives in a way that God has intended us to live. So we have nonverbal communication, and then we have this precious book called the Bible that is the verbal communication. But then lastly, God also gives us not just these general communiques, but gives us individual for you, where you are, in your situation, and the choices that you're making today. God gives us individual and personal communication. And it comes this way, this way, when God reveals himself, we see ourselves more clearly. When God reveals himself, we see ourselves more clearly. I, I, I experience the universal language of God. I get the verbal language of God. And both of those things together, it's like two books to read about God in conjunction. They allow me to see God for who he is. And once I see God like that, then I start to see myself a little more realistically. Verse 12, David says, Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You know, David saying that the more I know God, the more I know about myself, and the more I know about myself, the more changes that I can see God working in me to make me more like Jesus, to, to enable me to live in the way that God has designed me to live because there's something that we lost in the fall the fall of man. And we regain it in this life through conversion and by allowing God to transform us the more that we know him. There will be an ultimate transformation in heaven, but until then, God is just changing us a little bit at a time. And part of that process is eliminating the destructive choices that we make or can make. And David calls out two kinds here. There are two ways of sinning. There's ignorant sins and willful sins. But in your notes, you could put this. Like the closer I grow or we draw to God, the more aware that we become of our ignorance and our willfulness. And that's what David points out here. The willfulness first. Keep your servant also from willful sins that they may not rule over me. You know, the more I see God, 
the more I come into conflict with changes that need to be made in my life. And the truth is, sometimes I'm just willfully sinning against God. And God's word and his revelation through the Bible and, through, and even through what God reveals to us through uh, nature, um, as that light sheds on us, it makes us more and more uncomfortable with those willful sins. Isn't that true? But then there are also ignorant sins or blind spots. David calls them hidden faults. Hidden faults, those things that you know, like, when I became a Christian, I didn't grow up in church or anything. So, like, I was very different from being a Christian. I wasn't like the super saint that you see before you today. And so, um, I knew, before I became a Christian, I knew some things had to change about me. Like, two or three and then what I realized, the longer I was a Christian, is like, there's just like things that I didn't see about myself. Those are the hidden faults that God is kind of refining in me. You know, in that way, God's word is like driver assistance technology. You got, how many of you have that on your vehicle? You have that thing that beeps at you, tells you you're doing something dumb? Come on, raise your hand. Those, the rest of us are driving old vehicles. You know, that little beeper, whatever, there's different versions of it, but like if you're about to make a lane change and you don't know that that car's next to you, it beeps at you. And it gets even louder, right? It's like you put on your blinker and it's like beep, beep. And if you start moving, it's like beep, 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 beep. It's like a punch in your head, you know? And that's new technology that's making us aware of blind spots. I, I just like to say that like, we've always had driver assistance technology. It just came in a different form. Uh, for me, it came like in screams from the back seat for my children or uh, you know, my wife pushing her own pedals, pretend pedals from the passenger seat. Like That told me I'm doing something wrong. Or there's always the, you know, like the dad version. Every dad does this. How many of you are old enough to remember like brake, arm comes out in front of you? Anyone? Like that was driver assistance technology. Something bad's about to happen. <laughs> Didn't need a beep. We had dad. Those are ways like may, maybe you. Maybe you're in this, you know, it's like I'm a Christian. I love seeing God in nature. I feel God speaking to me in his word. But like every once in a while, like, whoa, I didn't know that about myself. That's your individual communication. That's your IDP, IDP, your individual development plan. God has you on a program. You know, uh, a couple weeks ago, I went to an event here in the community, um, which was uh, hosted by a, a church that's coming to the valley, but um, the speaker was Propaganda. And Propaganda is a Christian hip-hop artist. Anybody know Propaganda? Okay. Um, and he's out of L.A., he's great. And he, uh, he spoke on race, unity, and the church at this event. He talked for about an hour, and then he took questions. And so there was, there was great dialogue there, and it was really helpful. I'm really glad that I went. Several, uh, probably about 10 or 12 of us from Sunridge went to that event. 
But in the audience, you know, one of the persons that was asking a question really wasn't asking a question. You know how that goes. And uh, they had a speech to make. And in, in the speech, uh, this person was talking about how God doesn't want to change us. That, you know, every one of us is just the way God wants us to be. And, you know, it, you know so God would never change us. And I'm just sitting there thinking, wow, you're on a total different program than I am. Because I, I am on the major change program. God does want to change us. That's, if, if you're a Christian, you are on a change program from the day you became a Christian to the day you arrive in heaven and all the changes will be made. You're on a transformation program. He does want us to change. And the way he does that is by individually pointing out things to us that were blind spots or, in some cases, willful sins. One of the, one of the quotes that I put in your notes that I love that kind of ties into this is from Tim Keller. And he's written a daily devotion on Psalms, which I referred to in preparing my messages. And he says this about the Bible. Don't just study it but let it search you. See, we go to the scriptures and we say, I'm going to search out the scriptures. That's, that's kind of what we do. And that's, we're supposed to do that. But he's turning that upside down. He's saying, allow the communication that God is giving you through nature, through his word, and some of that tap on the shoulder specific stuff for you, let it search you. Let God's communication search your heart and your motives and your actions. And then allow him to make the changes that he wants to make because what God is trying to do is he's trying to create as much heaven on earth through his people today as he possibly can through his son, Jesus Christ. And that change is happening through Christians. He's changing us, and he's calling us to change the world around us. That's why he communicates with us. Aren't you glad that, that this God of the universe who has made this vast place that we can't explain fully, that we don't understand, that that God did that so that you would know him. And aren't you glad that he remarkably preserved his inspired word written by many different authors over centuries through challenge and persecution and, and those that sought to destroy it, that he preserved it so that he could verbally communicate with you. And aren't you glad that as part of that communication program that he speaks to you individually? He has a general word and a general communication, but he's still tapping people on the shoulder through a variety of ways. And he's saying, you know, I want you to move forward. I want you to take a step. 
I want you to change this. And I'll help you change. That that God still seeks to communicate that kind of love to people that live in Temecula or Marietta in this surrounding valley. That's the God that we serve. Psalm 19, his, the universe has declared his glory. And it also tells us, along with his word, that he loves each one of us. You know, I'm going to pray, and then uh, while I'm praying, the band's going to come up, and we're going to sing a song. Um, this has become one of my favorite songs. It's about creation, and it ties the whole expanse of God's creation and his redemption together. And as we sing it together, I just want to encourage you to allow those words to be the prayer of your heart and think about the things that we've talked about today and God's desire to communicate his love with you. Will you pray with me?